0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted today to be joined by Seymour Hirsch, who is a multi-award winning journalist and reporter. He's won Pulitzer Prizes, Orwell Prizes, Polk Prizes, the lot. Uh, And we're going to be talking about a piece, Seymour, that you wrote on your substack called How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. I think we should start, uh, for some of our listeners who aren't up to speed on this story, by going back a bit. When the Nord Stream Pipelines were attacked, there were these explosions in the sea, and the story made quite a lot of news, but not actually that much news. And there wasn't that much curiosity as to what had actually happened. Some people said that the Russians probably did it. Others asked why would the Russians do it. That would make no sense. And then the story sort of disappeared. And it's come back partly thanks to your piece, which has attracted a lot of controversy, because uh, even though uh, you're a journalist, if I can say this without sounding like a flatter, even though you're a journalist of great distinction, it's thought to be conspiracy theorising to suggest that America did it. Um, so I'd start start, I'd start by asking you about that. Why did you use Substack, your own platform, to publish this piece? And give us a little bit of background about the story.
1: Uh, well, thank you for not calling me legendary, because that would put me in my grave. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I hate that word. Uh, we've all seen what's happened. I think Trump had a very deleterious effect on the media. The media has either gotten completely one way or another way. We have we have Fox News on one side and MSNBC and CNN on the other side. Even in Washington, we have a conservative paper that I have never I don't even look at. And we have the Washington Post, which is liberal and hostile as could be to Trump from the day one. And we have the New York Times, which is where I worked for eight, seven, eight years, using, by the way, anonymous sources constantly, because that's the only way you can report the kind of stuff I do. I don't think I could have gotten me lied into the if there was a democratic president in, in the in the White House, Johnson had left. mean life took place in sixty nine. In sixty eight, when Johnson was president, but what I learned about it was eighteen months later, Nixon was president.
0: Just to interrupt you there uh, again for our listeners, you're talking there about the My Lai massacre, which is a very famous story from Vietnam, which you uh, famously had the scoop. You broke that story.
1: I, I've been a journalist. I've been a police reporter in Chicago, which is a real tyranny. You know, you could do it. You can report on anything in in, in Chicago, any crime or fire in Chicago. You couldn't report on police thievery, stealing, the cops being and you couldn't report on the mafia. There was a section of the city run by the mafia and with the connivance of the police. And if some guy was found with 14 bullet holes and the police reported it as a traffic accident, the bottom line is it's a very complicated question because right now, the New York Times is in the Democratic side. You know, it supports Biden. They, they're very favorable about Biden. They think he's done a great job. And he's on domestic stuff, he's done as well as anybody could, that's for sure. Its political leanings now are, are unbelievable. It, it was not that kind of a political animal before. When the Times offered me a chance to come to Washington and write about the war critically, I jumped because it was a straight paper. It's mm-hmm. not now. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think of going to the Times I didn't think of going back to the New Yorker because I had problems with, you know, again, the same issue that a good a good friend of mine, an oil friend of mine, an oil man wrote me. And he said, oh, Seymour, when he read the story, he said, you have become a master at deconstructing the obvious. (laughs) It's just an obvious story. I mean, it's just it was just sitting there. I like you wondered after the blow up. Who else could have done it? You know, I, I know NATO, maybe Ma- Macedonia is the country. Isn't NATO in Macedonia, NATO? Maybe did NATO, did Macedonia do it? Did NATO do it? NATO had no reason. It's European.
0: And Some people said at the time it could have been Poland or Polish involvement uh, on these attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines. I thought one of the most striking bits of your piece was that you reported on the level of Norway's involvement for people who haven't read the piece. I recommend that everybody does read the piece. Could you please explain how Norway became involved in this incident, what happened and how it happened?
1: Well, uh, um, I don't have a video of a decision in the White House. But what I wrote, if you want me to summarize that very quickly, I can do that for you very quickly. It was just an article that said there was a mystery about it. It's been unexplained. Suddenly in late September, and the, the dates are important, December, September 26th, at the almost uh, at the end of summer, uh, there was this great explosion in the Baltic Sea. One pipeline had 750 miles of methane gas stored in the new pipeline. There were two pipelines that had been built by Gazprom, which is, uh, Gazprom was, the initial one was 51% owned by Gazprom, which is a bunch of oligarchs who pay, you know, in the thrall of, of Putin for sure. The Russian uh, Treasury made $40, 50 billion dollars a year out of it. Uh, and there was so much money in it, and it was it, it was built. Took it got in the business in two thousand and eleven, and and delivered. Uh, uh, Russia is loaded with natural gas up in up in Siberia, et cetera, and oil. It, it delivered gas beginning in two thousand and eleven into into Germany directly. There were other gas pipelines. There's still a pipeline that Russia runs through Ukraine today, a smaller one. And, and the Russia still pays the Ukraine government a fee for running it. It's still going. Nobody's bombed it. Nobody, we it was on a target list, I was told. Zelensky Z- Z- said no, <laughs> we need the money. Uh, it's still going. There's a smaller one, but that only provides about six or seven percent. This one provided 18 to 20 percent of very, very perfectly good methane gas, very cheaply. And for years, the, the German economy, which is a, a vibrant economy, uh, you know, Mercedes, etc., gas cheaply. And The Western world, the United States leading it, and NATO, they've always worried about what what we call simply weaponization, the Russian weaponization of gas. It's a political tool for them. It was an entry into Western Europe, and and we've always been very anti-communist in America. In in the Cheney-Bush years, there was worry about Nord Stream 1 when it was built. And there's stuff on the record saying we've got to do something about it. We can't have Russia have this kind of an input into into the European economy because it diminishes the role of NATO and the United States. Western Europe has, you know, how much natural gas is there in, in England? Not much. They're, they're, not, they're not rich. So it was very important. And the second pipeline was organized after the first one started in 2011. The second one was organized later and was built by 2021, but sanctioned by Germany because of political pressure, because of the Ukraine war. And also when Russia went into Ukraine. Even before that, everybody stopped buying from Nord- Nordstrom one. So the two pipelines were not in existence. They had gas in them, but they were not they were not operating when the war when the war uh, got going. and And so in September, early on, when we had not much leverage on Putin, there had been 30 years of uh, despite a commitment of uh, expanding NATO to the east when, when just the history is interesting because West, when East Germany joined West Germany, and, you know, don't forget, you know, the Germans spent, what, you know, a decade murdering and killing people in Western Europe and destroying societies. It was a huge problem to get back faith. That's what Ostpolitik was with Willy Brandt in those days. And Egon Barr was, we're going to show Europe, we're, good, we're going to be good neighbors. We're going to trade with you. We're going to make everybody richer. We're going to really be good people. And and they got back in the good graces. Now, you can imagine how hard it was for them in those first 10, 15, 20 years. But to get back into NATO, to combine the countries, West Germany was in NATO, to combine the newly combined East and West Germany, we made a commitment in 1990 not to expand to the East. And we, Gorby said, you can have it there with no problem. We won't cut off oil. We won't do anything as long as you make a promise not to go to the East. And since then, you, you, NATO initially was set up with 19 countries in Western Europe. And now I joke about Macedonia, but there's now, what, 40-something members of NATO? And it's going you know, Italy and stuff like that. It's gone way out of man. So from the Russian point of view, this one one mark, one line that you couldn't cross is Ukraine. Russians, what in nineteen thirties in the famine, Russia let what twenty two million people die there in the famine. You know, it's always been a security blanket for them that kept them from the West. What the Ukraine was the West the blanket. We 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 broke that. We broke that by by talking to bringing Ukraine. In 2014, into the uh, the Western sphere, the EU, for example, and so nothing justifies war. But we jumped in, and the uh, the Democratic Party now is the war party in America. Everything's, as I say, and Biden wanted to stop Russia, and so he asked the intelligence community, "Give me options, how to stop Russia." This is before before Christmas, 2021. Uh, the war began a year ago. This month, in 22. I know a lot about those meetings. Uh, I've written a lot about them, uh, not as much as I know, but and in the the question was do, are we going to do stuff that's kinetic or non-kinetic? Are we going to re- reversible or irreversible? That was the language. An irreversible reversible would be sanctions. Irreversible would be something kinetic. And it came quickly that killing the pipelines was a solution. It cut off any chance for Russia to have influence on the West and Western Europe and Germany. We wanted them on our side if the war came in. War seems to be something that makes presidents win elections. You know, I mean, that's that's just the reality. You go to war, you get public support, you know, and, and Jack Kennedy used to talk a lot about Lincoln and Roosevelt being the great presidents they were because they have wars, which is why he, I think he, he stayed in Vietnam. Who knows? He died too young. Anyway. Anyway. The committee—it was—it was, it was a group: CIA, National Security Agency. You're, you're, you have your electronic people that are awfully good too. And um, uh, the, the Treasury Department, the State Department—they had a high-level meeting. The, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, ran it. And very quickly, the word was passed to the White House: uh, We could do this. We could take out. We're going to be. We could do what you really want. All along, it was clear they wanted to. They wanted the committee to say. Let's blow up the pipeline. So they did. They could do it. They did some studies. And then the next thing you know, the undersecretary of state for, uh, for uh, um, undersecretary of state, Newland, Victoria Newland, in late January, about two weeks after they say to the White House, we can do it covertly, she says, we have a means of doing it. We can take care of the, the pipeline. We can get rid of the pipeline by any means. And then two weeks later after that, in early January, February, uh, the president uh Schultz, the German chancellor, was meeting him in the, in the White House talking about the coming war. And Schultz, has an, uh, and Schultz sits there as Biden, in response to a question, he's asked about Nord's, the new pipeline that had just been sanctioned, been, been shut down by the German government. Uh, he said, we can take out Nord Stream time anytime we want. We can do it. So the guys in the community say, OK, the threat's out there. It's supposed to be a secret threat. But they keep on working. That's their job. They work for the crown. Norway is is our it's our puppet. I don't think there's any other word to describe it. Norway is we've put I would bet close to a billion dollars we've in Norway runs the border along the Atlantic coast between Oslo and the Arctic Circle is 1400 miles and, and Norway runs into runs into Russia up there in the Arctic Circle. And we have incredible spy stuff up there. We've built uh, what they call synthetic aperture radar up way up uh, 1200 miles up north. Uh, we have a, we've, we, there's a new air base we built, we've upgraded it and put, we built a lot of our, given the Norwegians, a lot of our advanced uh, Boeing uh, airplanes, military planes. We've upgraded a submarine base that must have cost, I don't know, hundreds of millions, if, if much more. And so we have all sorts of stuff going on, spying. So Norway's, and also they live at the sea, you know, they're, they've, they, they have 1,400 miles of the Atlantic Ocean, a, a rich, a lot of gas. And they wanted to get a bigger part of the margin, so they're all in a, a, on it. There was a mercantile reason, and so working with the Norwegians was a very smart. They 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 hate Russia, as does Sweden and Denmark, and they we needed the Norwegians because you know the Baltic Sea is a complicated sea; it's deep to put mines in. So they found us the most shallow part of the of the uh, of the uh, sea, and Sweden and Norway looked the other way while we practiced, you know, to put m- blow up mines blow pipes surrounded the pipes are steel Mm -hmm. and they're surrounded by concrete because of the salinity of the water for protection and so when you're blowing it up you've got eight you've got what four pipes (laughs) each has two pipes and two two uh, covers you got eight things to blow up and and you're using c4 which is really lethal i mean you, you could take down a major building in london in washington or new york with c4 enough of it it's very the most powerful stuff going And so um, they trained and trained. And so eventually, they found a a way to do it in June, May, June. There was an exercise. They have a summer exercise, a a NATO exercise where ships run around and they all bump into each other. I don't know what they do in exercises. But we, the the CIA, actually, somebody quite brilliant convinced the leadership of the NATO, of the American, um, uh, it's NATO, but it's run by the United States, to have a uh, The first time ever, a training mission and dropping mines and blowing them up. Uh, The the mine world is, and the last thing Navy cares about is nobody wants to be in the mine command. But it it does a lot of stuff. It blows up good things, and it blows up bad things. And so they they did it. They got ready to do it. The White House changed their mind, decided not to do it. Then they were afraid to be linked to them, and then wanted the mines. They were laid with forty-eight hour timers. They wanted to change. So that they could do it any time they wished.
0: That to me is the most incredible or, or hard to believe part of your story is that these bombs just sat there for quite a long period of time, just untriggered, just waiting to be to be blown up. How long were they sitting there untriggered?
1: They were sitting for three, four months before he blew the whistle. Your Navy people know a lot about this. Okay, because you're very good. You know, you you guys you guys have been screwing around with water for a lot longer than we have, so you're good. At, you're very good at all this stuff. So we had a, we we. It's all done by low frequency signals, basically. When you're in water, high intensity signals get burned up by the water, and yeah. so it's like the children's game. It's the sound you make. is <sniffs> knocks. It's really just more than that. A series of knocks triggers the sonar, which yeah. triggers the bombs and everything's underwater, everybody's using low frequency to communicate, so that it, you could have had a random knock, the knock, 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 knock. I don't know if you played the games we did. And plus, just the salinity. The Baltic Ocean turns out to be much less um, uh, salt, uh, uh, only about 10 12% uh, of the Atlantic Ocean. But it's still enough that you can corrode things. It was a huge problem. And by this time, the team that was doing it, the team working for the Crown, was very disturbed by what they were doing because their worry was if you blow up the pipelines, Mr. President, because you're worried the war in, the war in Ukraine looked pretty good in the summer, but by the fall, it was going much more badly than than the newspapers have reported. I, I've been a, I've been agog at the bad reporting, not so much in and uh, I, I do I do read The London Times and not so much there. But in uh, American papers, they 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 were acting as if Luke, Ukrainians surprised Russia, no question, by standing up more than they thought. But in the last weeks, the last days of Stalingrad, the Russians were against the Germans, they were losing 2,400 dead and wounded every four hours, and kept on going. You're not going. You're not going to win that war. I don't know when that became known to the president. That's what I'm interested in right now. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he did it in late September, and at that point. What was he telling NATO and Western Europe? He was saying that well, maybe if the war went bad and you were it was a bad winter, you would open up the pipeline because your economy would suffer. It is suffering. It was much milder than he's. It was a much milder winter. Everybody's very worried about next winter. It was mm. a much milder winter, but the economy has been shut down because the gas costs much more. You've lost a major pipeline. Now, the, the North Sea two, North Sea one was a major one, and North Sea two was going to be a bonanza. There was so much gas on the Nord Stream one that West that Germany with all of its industry, the the largest chemical company, Mercedes, and all these it's a great manufacturing country. All of the they, they had so much gas they were retailing, they were selling it downstream, as they call it for profit. And and Putin, if he's running it, or Gazprom, just let it happen. Uh, and so you took away that tool. So what worries me, what I'm looking at now. Is what's the message going forward for Europe and NATO? That you know that the president worried about continuing support from certainly from Germany and Western Europe because of the gas cutoff would put the gas back on, and you know tell them to go to hell in Ukraine. I I would I don't know this. I'm just giving you some heuristic yeah. thinking I'm having. And if that's so, he's telling Western Europe that you know don't really depend on us. Yes. You know, we're really not going to be there for you, have we? Have been since World War II. We're not going to be there. We're now selling in a, uh, liquefied natural gas at a price higher than we normally would. The, the, thank God that the Chinese economy went bad because of the Chinese idiocy about they never had a vaccine that was more than fifty percent effective. The Chinese are just something else. But anyway, their economy is taking a hit. Uh, but so is the, the in the long run, so is the German economy, even though they're not that cold right now. It's, but Berlin's getting cold. There's a lot more anger getting up there. So it's a, the whole question of what happened is going to be an issue for the Bundestag, for the German parliament, soon, I think.
0: The State Department haven't uh, ignored the story exactly. They've said it is complete fiction, and lots of people have been keen to attack you and say that you are a conspiracy theorist. Did you anticipate that, and how do you respond to that?
1: One of the things I've learned is that I'm, I'm always criticised for a story I wrote about Syria, which comes out that I, I said that Syria didn't do the gas which of course nobody reads anything. It was a long, I think, eight thousand word piece in the London Review that was checked by New Yorker fact checkers. All mm. I wrote about was the fact that three months before the uh, there was a sarin attack that was in the fall of nine two thousand and eleven in a suburb to the east of Damascus that was controlled by the opposition, the Sunni, the Muslim opposition. They are pretty much head choppers. I mean, they were you know they were out of the Al Qaeda league mm. in terms of radicalism. And there was a, a sarin attack. No question, it was sarin that was initially said they've killed fifteen hundred. The UN finally got the number down to one forty, but that's all right. You had to walk into it to die. It was what they call kitchen sarin, but that wasn't of interest to me, was it? What was of interest to me is that the you my the Obama administration made a big to do about this and said it was clearly sarin. Russians Bashar did this to his own people, and what I knew. I didn't write what I'm going to tell you. I didn't write all of it. I said I had a very sensitive document, and I did get uh, a three-star general in charge of intelligence to confirm an in print that we had such a document. In June, the Israelis are very concerned about chemical warfare in uh, Syria because they're, they're on a border. For them, that's a strategic weapon. And they've been working with us on reporting on it and spying on this whatever chemicals that were in the Syrian. There were The Syrian army has a, has a chemical division. And so we spied at it all the time with great success, very terrific technical stuff. And so we learned by June of six months, three months earlier, in June of 2011, we learned that both Turkey and and uh, the Saudis had been smuggling in the chemicals, the precursors, they call them. It's an it's a organophosphate. It's like a, a fertilizer and a certain alcohol mixed together, create nerve gas. And if you don't know what you're doing and start playing around with it, you're dead, even though it's not as lethal as the real stuff, and so there was a paper written, a top secret paper, and it had over it had signals intelligence, which is what I don't like to write about. I, I I think signals intelligence is a very wonderful thing to have, you know, as long as you're not spying on uh, as they did on Merkel <laughs> and opposition leaders, which of course is the abuse, and you guys are off the wall. I'm on phones, and I, mean, I, don't, I don't trust anything in your country. My country's a lot better. You're six people. You're, 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 you're people.
0: Well, there were a lot of British spooks involved in all the Russiagate stuff, weren't there?
1: You wire up a lot of people you shouldn't be wiring up in Europe. I mean, I, I'm just telling you that. I just happen to know that because your laws are different, you know, and your your, your little four-letter unit is a lot testier than than our, our NSA. <laughs> we, we are more <laughs> constrained. We have our abuses, but we do. Have, you have to get a court order. Talk to American. You don't have to do that in your country. I, I, you're supposed to, but anyway, why am I getting into this? The point is, I had a document that showed enormous pan- panic between American, and Israel, and a lot of our allies about nerve gas in the opposition in June of 2011. To the point, we did a study of how many troops it would take to wipe out all the nerve gas, El Nusra, and mm. this is for ISIS. But they're all uh, spin-offs of Al Qaeda. So the story I wrote for the London Review didn't say. Syria didn't do it, as everybody seems to think. It said there were two suspects known in the community, and they only told us about one. The other one was secret, so they can always live with a secret. And so that's what I did. Big deal. I mean, so I get, I'm used to heat, and I'm used to heat that doesn't come because people read. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is read the story. And uh, you want to talk about, just think about the consequences of naming a source. <laughs> think about it. Think about writing something that would have somebody say something that could be in a room at a certain time with others.
0: Well, I don't want to get into a debate about whether anonymous sourcing is OK or not. Uh, but obviously, in your line of work, it has many advantages.
1: It's in- impossible not to do it without it. Impossible. There's always been a tradition of, of, of journalism.
0: But the obvious disadvantage of anonymous sourcing is that nobody can prove you were right. Uh, it can always be disputed because the sources are anonymous.
1: I'll, I'll tell you, uh, things have happened. You know, um, uh, I wrote anonymously about a lot of stories. I wrote a, in, in, I wrote an anonymous with seven anonymous sources in a story for The New York Times that ran over a page in The New York Times about the CIA spying on American citizens. And um, it took four months before they finally admitted it. You yeah. know, they they had to admit that they were spying, and they they had a, a investigation. The Church Committee began.
0: Do you think it's a problem then that you didn't do the story with a publication like the New York Times? I mean, I accept that the New York Times, um, particularly since Trump, has gone a bit insane. But the trouble with a, a substack post is that um, people can just say that's just substack and dismiss it.
1: Or ask the question you ask, did I take it to the New York Times and the Washington Post? Hell no. I, you know, I'm long of tooth. And I know when it goes bad, it goes bad. And, you know, and, and there's also a jealousy factor, too, because, you know, if you're doing something, I've always had that in my. I mean, I, I've always I've always been a loner, even when I worked. Even at the New Yorker, I mean, it's basically a loner. I mean, I had friends, but there were people inside that didn't like it. I was doing always and objected yeah. to it. And that's just a fact of life. I live with that. It's lonely at the top. Oh, poor me, right? This story that I've done, even though the New York Times and Washington Post haven't touched it, and none of, none of the networks have touched it. Fox News, of course, had it. Tucker mm-hmm. Carlson ran minutes about it because he's, I've watched him. He I, he used to run, he, he was doing journalism 30 years ago in a, in a, a, crosstalk I was quizzed by him 30 years ago sometimes and he's very bright I, I he's not my cup of tea and I, I won't I don't go on their shows I'm doing this but I I won't go on the cable television I just think it's become it's just full of CNN and NBC you know they have panels and the first question is they say well what John what's going on at the White House and what's the first two words they say is I think and it's all full of people who don't know anything and they go on and they go on panels and they get and reporters get paid to say what the white house is thinking the question i that i'm looking at is not economic it's military and i'm doing a lot of deep digging right now and that's what i'm looking at what what was the situation exactly what what was known that we didn't know because i'll tell you the rep- the reporting on the war has been particularly in the last few months has been, been grotesque it's over, over. it's a question of how bad it is
0: would you say that's the problem with a lot of national security reporting it's that there's this coziness this clubbiness between Uh, National security establishments in Washington and London, say, um, and the press call that follows them. Uh, And that that clubbiness is so intense that there's no dissent now, particularly when it comes to military matters.
1: The way I put it is, as a confidential source now, is the press secretary taking you aside and saying, here, whispering to you. You know, when I was at the New York Times, I, I, I was hot. I came in hot. And I wrote a bunch of stories in 72. I was doing the war and I was asked to do Watergate because Woodward and Bernstein was so far ahead. And I did a lot of stuff on Watergate for them. And at one time the, in the New York Times hierarchy, uh, the, the biggest honor was to be the White House correspondent. And they asked me to be the correspondent in the spring of 73, after I'd done so much work for them on Watergate. And I, I uh, Woodward and Bernstein, you know, owned the story, but we got the New York Times doing great, you know, not just me, there were others, but largely me. And um, they asked me to be the day, the New York the 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 Pentagon, the White House correspondent for The New York Times. and that means I was going to get a column later if I wanted to or be a managing editor, you know what I mean? That was the track. And I did it for a day and a half, and I called the editor, Abe Rosenthal was my editor then, who was very right wing, very conservative, but I wanted stories. He used to come into my room in the Washington Bureau where I worked sneak up behind me and give me a, what they call a knuckle rub bill murray the comedian that does it on, on saturday night live and he'd say how's my little commie today because i would <laughs> wait to the left him and on all these issues he's very conservative how's my little commie today then the next sentence was, the next sentence was what do you have for me mm. next story he he likes stories and now certain stories aren't liked anymore and so when i was at the white house for two days I saw the reporters yelling at the press secretary. And the whole thing was to get a private minute, minute or two with him. And I told uh, Roosevelt, he said, you got to stay. You can't just walk out of that job. I said, I'll quit if I have to get one more. I'll just leave tomorrow. And then I could go to work. for I, I, I played tennis with Ben Bradley by then a lot. I could go to work at the Washington Post and all that stuff. You know, we have the Washington is a, It's a social club, too, in a little, in a little way. I, like, I never worked for the Post, but I always adored Bradley. He was a great character, one, wonderful person.
0: Well, another accusation that people throw at you now is that you are pro-Russian. How do you respond to that? <laughs> oh, oh.
1: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah, well, because that's because people are crazy. Because yeah. in other words, I don't think truth is pro or anti anything. Uh, I knew this was going to happen. I, you. <laughs> Uh, you know, actually, I went to of Chicago where I will tell you, we did read Marx and Engels, which nobody reads anymore. Nobody even knows what it was. And my uh, and my wife not only read Dostoevsky; she read the the Quiet Flows the Don in college. My wife was also a student there, which nobody reads. Nobody even read then. It's a three volume series of books. It was not Dostoevsky? It's so deadly prose. Uh, I've been to Russia. Been to Russia in the cold days when you the only way you could communicate back in the Cold War in the, in the early eighties. For a cab, you had to put up three fingers how much over the meter you would pay in rubles. And if they found out you were American, they would drop you off and say, go bring me some blue jeans. This I'm not exaggerating. And I'll give you a rise all you want for the next week because blue jeans were such a commodity. And But I've been there under Putin in the last few years. They, when they know you're American, they want to talk to you. And mm-hmm. everybody I had a drink with, every businessman hates Putin as much as people here do. <laughs> it's, and it was doing great business with the West. And Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what I do think about Putin. I don't think he wants to come and take Europe. I don't think that he really wants to recreate the empire. I think he wants to hold Ukraine down to where it was as a a vassal state. I absolutely do. And you can't applaud anybody who started a war. That is crazy. Certainly the most murderous war since World War II, to start that and Mm -hmm. the kind of slaughter that's going on. But, you know, there was a serious chance for peace that I do believe your, your Boris Johnson interfered with in the spring. But The problem with Zelensky, and we all know it, and and nobody wants to talk about it here, but the community knows it, he's as much of a grabber and a a thief as the rest of the generals. I mean, they fight about they squander over what percentage you get. I'm just telling you a reality.
0: Well, because uh, I don't want this podcast to be cancelled, I think I should try and push back on you there a bit. What exactly are you talking about with Zelensky? I mean, there's the offshore bank account element that uh, i think the guardian reported on
1: no well we all know that there may be he's had the panama city stuff know yeah, panama city the panama discord they, which is now he had an account there uh, the is what he is what he is he's a patriot he's doing it he's not doing i mean there is money to, there's always money in those places ukraine's not a noble country when it comes to criminal activity it's way high and always been in the bottom of the list or the top of the list yeah. of a you have to you have to pay for anything you have to bribe your way for anything. But, you know, that's it's that way in other Middle Eastern countries, too, uh, uh, still now. But I can tell you that our community is very distressed. The intelligence community is very distressed by the amount of corruption that that he knows about. And he fired a bunch of people. Said, if you remember, there was a visit by our CA director about a month ago there. And then a week later, he fired 15 or 16 people. I'm sure that did, that's not an
0: accident. So you're saying the U.S. intelligence community said to the Ukrainians, "Look, we're giving you all this money, and we can see that the corruption is still going on, and that's why Zelensky got rid of these figures in his government."
1: That's- well, that's, that's well. I mean, I, 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 you know, one and one is always two. The yeah. American, the Americans go there, and there's a meeting there, and they they say it's there to urge him to cease uh, go for a ceasefire, which isn't going to be his call anymore. It's going to be the other guy's call. Uh, and then he fires 15 people a week later. I mean, you know, there's, as I said, I, I got into this deconstructing the obvious, you know, that's the, the pipeline story. That's what I just told you, deconstructing the obvious. I, I would take that as a principle, a theory for going to work. The yeah. point is you can't make me out to be some sort of Russian zealot. That's just, there's just no evidence for it. It's just people, because I happen to write something that that Russia likes. I live in a world where the 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 Secretary of State breaks off a meeting with his counterpart in in China. He was going to go there because of a balloon. <laughs> I mean that's what he did. And yeah. uh, we have a new plane. We I mean I, it's this this is the absurdity. This is like bathos, pathos, and bathos. You know, yeah. it's bathos. The we we have another three hundred fifty billion dollar uh, airplane, the F twenty two. Just got online. Its first hit was a balloon. And the pilot came back. This I'm telling you, I do know this. This is not just incidentally. Don't ask me why I, I have friends that tell me this things. The pilot came back in World War II. Your guys who flew your, you know, your diggy planes against the Mr. Smith would always put the little markers on the side of the how many kills they had. Uh, he, when he went back, he painted a balloon and put it on the side of the fuselage. I mean, in mockery, I'm sure. Uh, you know, I got a balloon. The first kill of the F twenty two is a balloon, and and uh, one of your British correspondents wrote a piece the other week. Andrew Col- Coburn, who's quite quite great in Substack, he wrote a piece that uh, I see and uh, about. Uh, we had one plane that we built. We paid two hundred three billion dollars for the B one in the eighties. Two hundred three billion dollars for it. Right now, <coughs> seven <I'm> still flying. <laughs> he wrote a piece about it. It's just absurdity. Yes, it's the absurd. Just the defense spending. And one of the problems is, uh, I have to tell you that I think is is real. We don't have the same manufacturing base as we had. The Ukrainian army is using as much rockets. I'll just use that phrase: shells, rockets for a large cannon, and they use uh, as much as much in a week as we in warfare use in a month. So right. the, the, we don't have the arsenal anymore because don't forget we're not a state-run arsenal. Russia has the state-run so we're all private, we're all companies, and they have to have a a contract and an order and begin the production. The production lines can't keep up because we we haven't made that many, you know, you have to order six months in advance from our corporations. The the American government does not own uh, defence procurement facilities. They're all privately owned.
0: Well, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, and I know you've got to go, so um, we'll try and wrap this up now. Uh, I'd like to ask you finally about the reaction to your piece. You've mentioned earlier, you said the Russians liked your piece. It went down very well.
1: Yeah, the Russian media. I I, I haven't talked to anybody in Russia. I, I've only even talked to reporters. Um, people, have, uh, I I I don't talk to politicians. I, I had one senator. I picked up the phone and he was on the phone. So I talked to him politely because I, I also talked to, I always am polite to journalists. I spent 50, 60 years in this business. And Russian journalists are journalists too. I mean, they're not all in. You know, they're not all in the thrall of Putin at every moment. When I went to Russia, as I said the last time, the amount of dislike of Putin that was out there was palpable. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't like their leader, just like a lot of people didn't like Trump. And mm-hmm. there's not much you could do about it. Uh, that, but I've stayed away from the German members of the parliament who wanted to talk to me. Uh, there's people in China who want to talk to me. I've stayed away for. I'm just. I just. I'm just dealing with press people. Uh, and, and I'm I'm not doing interviews with with certain people. I'm, you're, you're, I'm doing interviews with you people. I'm doing interviews in America. I'm doing interviews, but I, I'm staying away from the countries with which we're first where I just as a as a matter of prudence. I've been offered a great deal of money, even to talk to some of these people. Which yeah. of course, it's not unethical for me to take it. I don't think, but it's really unethical for them. to I keep on saying, don't you guys know you can't pay for news? You know, it's just crazy. But they don't know it. Some of them, the young kids that talk to me. So yeah. I haven't, you know, I when I wrote Vietnam, when I wrote My Line, I'd covered the Pentagon for the AP for a couple of years and I learned about the war on job on the job training. I knew how bad it was. I also read, you know, I've been reading, I, I started reading about the war in 1962. I would get the New York Times and the, the, I, I didn't know French well, but I could stagger through Le Monde, which had great correspondence there because French, you know, be, be, they 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 were driven out by Ho Chi Minh and I. You know, B and and I'm mispronouncing it, but the famous battle they lost, and uh, and, and there was a famous exodus when 12,000 troops walked out in in 1954 under guard to get on British ships to go. I mean, French ships to go home. Um, And so um, I started reading about the war early. I of course wanted to go because I was young and stupid. But then I got married, and there was a rule when I was at the AP, you couldn't um, you couldn't go if you were married. And I probably would have been you know, because I'd been in the Army, I probably would have run up and, you know, been like Daniel Ellsberg. You know, Ellsberg uh, had been in the Marines when he was in the State Department. He went back there and he used to go on raids with the Marines in mm. full gear with, the, you know, and uh, his M1 or his M16. I have of him doing it. Ellsberg's interesting to me because he's so smart. Anyway, I, I know what to avoid. I don't, want, I don't want to get into politics, but I will tell you this story, the 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 Post and the, the, the networks who avoid it, are really nuts because I'm it's it's expanded every day it's all over the world more people call, I know just some who would want interviews from mm. all over the world i'm i'm besieged with with um, it's getting in the in into south asia now you know and, and it's people people are this is a story i'm sorry uh, it had no sources but it has some facts i mean we, I don't quite know why we had to put our missiles that we call defensive missiles that turned into offensive nuclear, you know, seven minutes away from downtown Moscow. I don't know why we had to do that. That seems to be incredibly aggressive. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to. We we can do, we can, you know, Why are, why, why are we back in the worst of the Cold War right now? And why is the Democrats so responsible, so happy about it when they were so much against other wars, Vietnam War? So everything, as I say, is topsy turvy. The One more thing I'd say is, is that there's been a lot of uh, what they call um, uh, open source intelligence. People in OSINT. There's two or three guys writing, and they're, they're they're very they're you know they're they're what they are. They're people who are obsessed about. Facts, and so they immediately went and they looked at all the tracking they could find and everything else, and they and they're writing all about. I get I get one a day writing me now. I've had one the other day, and they they're decent enough. They write me and they say, well, that that boat you wrote couldn't have been there. We never found the boat. We didn't find that. And I will tell you that one thing that uh, RCA and believe me, your people do. Your six people know all about it too. Is they're doing a mission. You love o- open source intelligence because you you have a, a little team that puts out enough stuff they become part of your cover. Mm. <laughs> you put yeah. out enough false flag signals. You're sending yeah. this plane there and that plane there that when you actually do something, they can't see it because there's so much other stuff they're tracking. And that's actually done. That's, yeah. actually, that's actually one of the first things you do is about how to help, how to avoid things in open source and how to help open source be
0: helpful to us. You're talking there about Bellingcat, I think. Bellingcat, the open source collective of journalists, online journalists, because I noticed they've attacked you quite a lot. Oh, I just call that guy. What's his name? The
1: ones Higgins? I call him Houch Potato. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't take him seriously. He jumped on me in about Syria because he he saw. (laughs) Anyway, I don't think he's serious. I mean, he thinks he's serious, but I you know he he he's taken much more seriously than I think he should be, but so what? Who cares? Yeah. You know, he's making a living. Some of the stuff I'm sure he does is quite reasonable. But he's not a scientist.
0: Seymour Hirsch, thank you so much
1: for joining us. Thank you for taking me 20, 11 minutes over my time and pissing off all sorts of people.
0: Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. (coughs)